0: If you would please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Last week we began our study in the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, the shortest of the four Gospels. Lacking any prelude, Mark jumps right in. If you look at the first verse of the first chapter, the beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then we find seven verses that deal with someone who is sent ahead of Jesus to announce his arrival. Fulfilling Old Testament prophecies, John came baptizing in the desert, in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I mentioned last Sunday that desert or wilderness appears four times in the first 13 verses of Mark, but I think I failed to mention why this is significant, so let me do that now. First of all, the wilderness was Israel's location for 40 years after the Exodus. It is where they were between the Exodus and entering the promised land. It's a place where they received the law. It was a place of learning. It was also a place of testing and of judgment. It was the place where the adult generation of the Exodus died because of their sins. In short, it was a place where Israel was tested by God and Israel failed again and again. Secondly, John baptized in the Jordan River. And I think this is a deliberate choice on his part. There are other places he could have baptized. Um, But in Israel's history, the Jordan River marked the end of their time in the wilderness. And crossing the Jordan River meant that they were in the promised land. Um, but perhaps more importantly is that baptism was not something that Jews did baptism was something that Gentiles did that is to say if you were a Gentile but you had come to believe that Jehovah Yahweh was the one true God and you wanted to follow him and to belong to his people you would become what is known as a proselyte you had to be baptized so a Gentile would be baptized and then in a real sense become a Jew. Well, John is preaching to Jews, okay? They're already Jews, okay? But in fact, they are, as he preaches, they are sinners. They need to confess their sins and they need to be baptized. And in fact, that's what people did. They went out to him, they heard his preaching and they were baptized. The third thing is, after being baptized, immediately we are told that Jesus is sent into the desert by the Spirit, and he was there forty days being tempted by Satan. Israel was in the wilderness forty years, Jesus is in the wilderness for forty days. He is, in fact, the embodiment of God's people, and the forty days should remind the reader of the forty years that Israel was in the wilderness. The difference is, Israel was in the wilderness 40 years and they failed again and again and again. Um, Jesus, on the other hand, was tempted by Satan and he was victorious, not once, not twice, but three times. Um, and this is the difference between Israel and Jesus. We saw this in our study of evil, um, that God wants to deal with the problem of evil through people we find out that they're more the problem than they are the solution Um, in numbers 14 we read as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times not one of them will ever see the land I promise on oath to their forefathers no one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it And as one writer put it, the meaning is quite clear, especially from the narrative that follows. While Israel, God's child, had failed in the desert, Jesus, God's son, triumphed. The question might come up, why would one refer to Israel as God's child or God's son? Well, in Exodus chapter four, God commissions Moses to go to Pharaoh. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son and I told you let my son go that he may worship me but you refuse to let him go so I will kill your firstborn son. Have you ever wondered why the 10th plague why the firstborn son? Israel is seen as God's firstborn son and Pharaoh wouldn't let them go and so God kills the firstborn uh, throughout Egypt. And in Hosea 11.1, 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. A passage, by the way, that is quoted uh, in Matthew, because Joseph and Mary with the baby, Jesus, go to Egypt. And then at a certain point, they find out Herod is dead, and they leave Egypt. And the Hosea passage is seen as referring to that. So that's why the desert motif is really important here at the beginning of Mark. Today, we start with the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. Look, if you would, at verses 14 and 15 here in Mark chapter 1. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news or the gospel of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news or the gospel. There's several things I want to mention here, some of which I've talked about before, but I think they're important. First of all, it's interesting that Jesus, as Mark records it, uh, apparently is preaching in Judea, where John is. But once John is arrested by Herod, and why is he arrested? Because Herod took his brother Philip's wife, Herodias, took her to be his wife, and John said, This is wrong. You've broken the law. This is not acceptable. So Herod arrested him. Once John is arrested, then Jesus leaves Judea and he goes back to his home region, his home province, Galilee, and there he begins to preach. And then, as we've seen, the gospel, uh, this is a word that is, I think, too Christian for its own good, at least over the centuries. Um, The Romans are in charge of the Mediterranean basin and regions outside of it. At this point, they have an emperor, but it wasn't always that way. Uh, Julius Caesar uh, tried to become the emperor. He was assassinated in 44, and then what follows is a series of civil conflicts, a civil war. Uh, Mark Antony and Cleopatra on one side, Brutus and Cassius on the other, and then you have Octavian, uh, who is Julius Caesar's adopted son, and Octavian came out on top in 33 BC. Uh, He took the name Augustus Caesar, and the title, the divine son, or the son of a God. Two years later, he sent out a letter throughout the empire. Okay? This is what it said. The beginning of the word of glad tidings, or gospel. It's the same word. That have come to all men, through the coming of God to rescue the world, repent and believe. We're like, well, this, this sounds very Christian. But it, in fact, it's a very political statement. It is a public announcement that something dramatic has happened. The message of Caesar Augustus is, in fact, to be good news. An empire has arrived. There is an emperor. He is now in charge, and he is going to save the world. Therefore, people need to repent and believe. Repent of what? Of their sins? No, they need to change their thinking. Up to this point, Rome hadn't had an emperor. Now they do. I'm like, yeah, we were, not sure. we're not sure we want an emperor. And Augustus is saying, repent. You need to change your thinking. And you need to believe that, in fact, I am the legitimate emperor of the Roman Empire. But when we hear Jesus saying this, repent and believe the gospel, we tend to think that he is saying, give up your sins and become a Christian. And without question, Jesus, in fact, does want people to repent of their sins, turn away from their sins, to stop sinning. But it means more than simply giving up your sins. It means turning away from your way of looking at the world. And in his time, people, the Jewish people, were thinking, Messiah is going to come. He is going to be a political figure. He is going to save us from the Romans. And then it will be like the good old days, whenever that was. Um, and Jesus is saying no you need to change your thinking but secondly it also meant they needed to return to the true God their loyalty to God in many ways they had created idols the idea of independence of freedom from the Romans and yeah that's not that's not to be your God you are to return to the true God I think that Jesus listeners would have recognized when he said this like hmm This sounds suspiciously like what Augustus said when he became emperor. And what was it he was saying? Oh, we need to change our thinking and to believe. Um, Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Yes, we are to turn from our sins, but we are to turn to God, and we are to believe. So Jesus begins his preaching ministry in Galilee, and then he calls the first disciples. If you look at verses 16 through 20, as Jesus walked along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once, or immediately, they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, immediately, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Three things to note here. First of all, Jesus calls these first four disciples in the midst of their work, uh, James and John are repairing, they're preparing their nets to go out and fish. Peter and um, Simon and Andrew, they're already out there fishing. They're in the midst of work, and it is in the midst of the work that Jesus calls them. It's a pattern we find in the Old Testament. Moses was herding sheep when God called him at Sinai. Uh, Gideon was threshing wheat when the angel of the Lord appeared to him. Elisha was plowing when Elijah came and said, follow me one could argue that these are blue-collar jobs, not white-collar jobs, not high-level jobs. These are not uh, academic type of positions. These are people who work with their hands. That's fine. It's absolutely fine. Paul has to remind the Corinthians, who thought rather highly of themselves, um, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called, Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. These men are fishermen. They are, we would might say, uneducated. They're provincial. You know, They're not urban. They're not part of the elite. These are regular guys. And this is who Jesus calls. It is worth noting, uh, after the resurrection and the ascension, Uh, The apostles are preaching, and Peter and John are brought before the Sanhedrin, the elite, the religious elite. This is what we read in Acts 4. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Ordinary men, this is who Jesus calls the second thing to note is that they were called to be fishers of men. In my opinion, and that's all that it is, it's just my opinion, I don't think they knew what he meant. You know, somebody comes along and says, I'm going to make you a fisherman." What does that even mean? I, seriously. On some level, I'm not sure that we fully understand what it means. There is a move. They were fishing for fish. Now they're going to fish for men. But, but what does that mean? We can draw parallels, and commentators have done that, how that you throw out your net and pull the fish out of the sea in the same way you preach the gospel and you pull people out of darkness into the kingdom of God. Um, You have to be patient when you're fishing, and so you have to be patient as you preach the gospel. Uh, It requires hard work and effort, and so when they preach the gospel, they shouldn't expect that it's going to be an easy task. Um, Those may all be true. But I think when Jesus said, I'm going to make you fishers of men, I don't think that these men had any idea what he was talking about, which makes the next point all the more astonishing. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. I mentioned last Sunday that the word immediately is found at least 41 times in the book of Mark. It's found 82 times in the whole Bible. That is half of the times we see the word immediately in the gospel of Mark. Um, and immediately they leave their nets. They leave their profession, and they follow Jesus. And to appreciate the significance of this, put yourself in their place. We are the people of God, okay? But if the Lord came to us today and said, leave your job, Leave your families and follow me. Would we immediately do that? Or are we like, okay, I need to make some plans, make some arrangements, you know? Uh, these men followed Jesus. I think we would say, yes, I'm, I'm going to do that, but I need to give it some thought. Um, um, no, th- th- they followed him. And, you know, somehow... We don't think this, but in the back of our mind, it's like they knew how this was all going to turn out. That's why they were willing to do this. They had no clue how it was going to turn out. And yet they followed him. It's amazing. By the way, there are two immediately in the passage we've just read. The one is of Peter uh, or Simon and Andrew. The other is of Jesus. Um, in verse number 20, Without delay, that is immediately, he called them. He saw James and John, and he said, follow me. Um, Jesus did not hesitate to call James and John. They did not hesitate to follow him. There's something else here, and that is repentance. Um, We saw what we did about Augustus Caesar, calling people to acknowledge him as the emperor to turn away from any other person who might claim to be an authority. Um, In calling the disciples, Jesus is, in essence, telling them to repent, to turn away from an old way of life and to follow him in a new way of life. That is not to say at all that there's anything wrong with being a fisherman, an ordinary, uneducated person, okay? But rather the point is they left their old way of life to follow Jesus, These are the first four of the disciples. There would be 12 disciples in all. And why 12 disciples? Because of the 12 tribes of Israel. We will miss a lot if we fail to make the connections between Jesus and Israel. We've already seen it with the wilderness. We've seen it with the testing or the temptations. And now we see it with the disciples. Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee, his home province, in the town of Capernaum, which is on the seashore of the Sea of Galilee. So uh, this is where Peter and Andrew are living, as we'll see in a few minutes. Um, it's where the first four disciples were called. Okay. Mark now tells us about the first miracle that Jesus does. Now, if you read the Gospel of John, the first miracle is turning water to wine. But as Mark records it, and he's not saying this is the very, very first miracle, But as he writes it, this is the first miracle that he records. But first, we need to have uh, the setting. Look, if you would, at verses 21 and 22. They went to Capernaum, and immediately when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. Not that long ago, we just finished looking at Matthew 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And we're familiar with this idea of people being astonished, being amazed at Jesus because he taught as one having authority. By the way, the same word is used in Matthew 7 that is used here. It means to be struck out of themselves, out of your senses. It is to be dumbfounded. It isn't like, wow, that's pretty amazing, which means we've really watered the word down. It's like, They were dumbfounded. This man teaches with such authority and not like the teachers of the law. But there's something else that will amaze them. It begins in verse number 23. Just then, or immediately, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly come out of him the evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek the people were all amazed that they ask, they were all so amazed that they asked each other what is this a new teaching and with authority he even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee okay first of all note the setting it's a synagogue it's a sabbath it is our Sunday, if you wish. They're in church. They're in the synagogue. It's a place where they come to worship God every Sabbath. Okay? It's a day that is set aside for rest and for worship. And it is Jesus' custom to be in the synagogue on the Sabbath. We see this in Luke chapter 4. Now, um, we might think, what in the world is a person possessed by an evil spirit doing in a synagogue? Why is he in church? This is not a place where you would expect to find someone who is Um, (laughs) demon-possessed. How wrong we would be if we think that. We're told there's a man possessed by an evil spirit. Now the idea of demon possession has sort of lost popularity in the last century or so because people have seen it as a misdiagnosis of certain mental uh, issues. Like insanity and other mental conditions, and I don't know that I would disagree. I think that many people have been people have said, "Oh, this person is possessed," when in fact they might be bipolar or have some other uh, issue. Um, but it doesn't eliminate or discount the fact that there is such a thing as demon possession. And I would suggest this scenario to you: Satan has attacked Jesus in the wilderness has tempted him three times, and he fails, spectacularly. Jesus comes out, and Jesus has not sinned. Well, having failed to tempt successfully the Son of God, he now sends out his minions to possess those who bear the image of God. I would suggest to you that demon possession was on an unprecedented scale during the ministry of Jesus. Satan failed in the wilderness. Now he's going after those who bear the image of God. In the same way that one cannot kill God. You can't kill God, right? The next best thing you can do is kill one who bears the image of God. And in a real sense, murder is an attack on the person of God. But you can't kill God, so you kill one who bears his image. Noah was told, uh, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. Having failed in his assault on Jesus, Satan now sends out his demons to possess the Jewish people. Not all of them, obviously. And they are going to do battle with Jesus. Satan did in the wilderness. Now they will as Jesus is in his ministry. Also, the demon or the evil spirit is not some impersonal force. And this is one of the things I think we really struggle with. We tend to see evil uh, or other things as a force, not, not really a personal thing. Uh, but this demon knows who Jesus is, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of, the Holy One of God. He knows who Jesus is in his humanity. He knows who he is in his deity. He speaks Through the man to Jesus, two questions and a statement. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? And then the statement, I know who you are. Jesus does not need acknowledgement. He does not need a testimony from a demon as to who he is. And so he says, be quiet, come out of him. And the spirit shook the man violently. I don't know how you picture this in your mind, but I think it's safe to assume this didn't happen at the end of the service, after the benediction, okay? I don't think the demon's like, let's wait till everything's finished, and then I'll make a scene. I think this is right in the midst, and perhaps Jesus is even teaching at this point. It was the custom to read from the prophets, uh, we see this in Luke 4, and then to explain what the prophets were saying. I think it's right in the middle of the service that this demon makes a scene. And so Jesus commands. You know, he wants to end the interruption. Be quiet, come out of him. Well, in the same way that I argue that demons are not polite and wait till the, after the benediction, the demon doesn't just quietly leave this man. Only after shaking the man violently, the ESV has convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice. The King James says, I think he's even more dramatic, when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried out with a loud voice. Okay. Satan and demons hate God. And therefore they hate humanity. They hate human beings. And they do all that they can to harm and destroy human beings. So the demon's not going to politely leave. He is going to do as much damage as he can on the way out. In our series on evil, we saw this definition of evil. It is that which is anti-creation, anti-life, the force which opposes and seeks to deface and destroy God's good work of space, time, and matter, and above all, God's image-bearing human creatures. So we shouldn't be surprised that people are demon-possessed as Jesus begins his ministry because they are doing their best to attack God by, in fact, attacking those who bear his image. It is worth noting that, as Mark records the first miracle, it is the undoing of the harm that evil, that an evil spirit, an unclean spirit can do. And we see that just as they were amazed at his teaching, they are amazed uh, at his ability to cast out this demon. Um, He has authority. He speaks with authority. He acts with authority. And the word spreads. The people were all so amazed. They ask each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. And so the news spread about him all over the whole region of Galilee. Then we begin uh, to look at Jesus' healing in verse number 29. uh, We find the word immediately. Verse 29, immediately, or as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and immediately they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. I would point out that as Mark tells us of the healing ministry of Jesus, it begins with an individual, just as the exorcism is an individual, an unnamed man. But here we have uh, Simon, or Peter's mother-in-law, who has a fever. And I mention this, uh, it's something I've tried to stress over the years. Uh, We may lose sight of the personal contact as God works in people's lives, and we see this in the work of Jesus as he heals. Because without, without being flippant, I mean, why isn't that, you know, that there's a whole crowd of people, why doesn't Jesus just sort of wave his hand and heal everyone? Why is it when the woman touches the hem of his robe to be healed, Jesus stops and says, okay, who touched me? And then he wants to talk to her. Jesus wants to deal with people one on one. I think we would prefer mass evangelism to personal evangelism. We see in the life of Jesus that he works one-on-one with people. Why does he do this? Because this is the way God works. We would rather see God as a force, I think, instead of realizing that he deals with us as individuals. In the series on a kingdom worldview, we began with the reality of personal first cause. Therefore, creation is marked by the personal, not the impersonal. So they tell Jesus, you know, Simon's mother in law is in bed, she's got a fever, she's sick. He goes to her, he takes her by the hand, helps her up, and the fever leaves her. The one thing that I've always remembered about this particular incident I say always but that's stuck with me through the years is what happens next the fever leaves her and what does what happens then she began to wait on them she didn't run around and tell the neighbors i got healed i had a fever and jesus took me by the hand and the fever's gone she didn't testify if you wish she served the people there in the house. She went to work. That God had done a work in her life, obviously it's a cause for celebration and for gratitude, but it's like, I've, I've got a job to do. Now that my health has been restored, I've got a job to do. I find that very striking. I, I think in our age, um, somebody would want to make a video or do a bo- podcast on being healed. Um, no. She gets to work. I just find that very, very striking and so contrary to, I think, our own inclinations. Because, by the way, in testifying and giving thanks, there's nothing wrong with that. But if we're not careful, we become a star. I'm the one Jesus healed. And that's, no. My fever's gone. I've been healed. Um, Okay, I need to serve these people. I have a job to do. Verse 32, that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Well, he's exercised. He's, ki- he's thrown a demon out of this man. He is healed Simon's mother-in-law, Jesus becomes the focal point of interest in the town in Capernaum. Everybody, the whole town, wants to come. The whole town gathers at the door. By the way, you'll notice it's after sunset. And why is that important? Because the Sabbath is over then. As the Jews do their day, it's from sunset to sunset. So that means, by the way, that Jesus exercised and healed Simon's mother both on the Sabbath something that people kind of overlook but then the rest of the people being good Jewish people we observe the Sabbath Shabbat is over okay now let's go to Simon's house and let's get people healed and have demons cast out and then something amazing happens Jesus disappears look at verse number 35 very early in the morning while it was still dark Jesus got up left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. How striking is this? He went off to a solitary place and prayed. Jesus prayed? By the way, we find this throughout the Gospels. In Matthew 14, after he had dismissed the crowd, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Luke 5.16 verse perhaps you should mark in your Bibles, Uh, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. In Luke 6, verse 12, one of those days Jesus went out into the hills to pray and spent the night praying to God. Um, Why? We would think if anyone didn't need to pray, it would be Jesus. Luke tells us he did it often. He did it alone. He sort of separated himself. And Luke tells us that, uh, at least on one occasion, he prayed all night. Um, I think one of the problems we have is we don't pray as we should. And, boy, Jesus is really embarrassing us by the fact that he prays and, and we don't. Um, we don't often feel the need to pray um, And we are troubled that Jesus, in fact, did find it necessary to pray. We fail to recognize that we are always in need. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We need to pray. Is it any wonder that in our lives, we lack a certain... uh, Smoothness might not be the right word, but a consistency... um, in our experience. We fluctuate between hot and cold. Um, you know, just had a birthday, but I must confess at this age, I have never learned to, ru- to drive a stick shift vehicle. It's embarrassing, but I never have. But I have watched people trying to learn how to do it. And you know, you can tell they're trying to learn because it's that herky-jerky, you know, as they're letting out the clutch. I think that, to me, that That's the visual picture I have oftentimes of our lives as God's people. And part of the reason for that is there is no consistent place of prayer in our lives. So why did Jesus pray? Um, Prayer is the means of communication between God and his people. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He wants to maintain communication with his Father by the Spirit. In his humanity... Jesus is a man of prayer. <sighs> we should realize that, as Jesus told his disciples, you know, that they learn from him the master. You know, and the disciple is not above the master. If we have a need for prayer, we shouldn't be surprised that we see this in the life of Jesus. I think Jesus also wants to be an example for us to commend the duty of prayer. Um, He spoke on prayer a number of times. Um, But above all, I think Jesus wants to remove from us this sense of self-sufficiency. Like, Jesus, why are you praying? You've got it down. I mean, you kick out a demon, you healed Simon's mother-in-law, people are coming and you're casting out demons and healing people, why are you praying? There is no place for self-sufficiency. Jesus was in communion with the Father by the Spirit that he might do the work that he'd been sent into the world to do. The disciples don't get this. They don't get it. They have a sense that he should strike while the iron's hot. Look at verse number 36. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there. That is why I came. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. There's almost a hint of reproach here. What are you doing? Everybody's looking. This is, you're hot, okay? People want to hear what you have to say. Why are you off here by yourself? And Jesus says, basically, um, we're moving on, okay? Okay. This is one of the big differences between the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus, that John seemed to stay in one place. We find Jesus as a traveling teacher, and he tells his disciples, um, "There are other places I have to go. There are other places where I have to preach the good news. That's why I came." The disciples are, "Listen, the crowd is clamoring for you. You've made a real impression. You're trending okay what are you doing off here by yourself if you would get an efficiency expert or maybe get your MBA one of the two and go through the gospels and track how Jesus did things I think you'd come to the conclusion that it was a very inefficient approach to ministry that's not how you build a following. Jesus did not have any sense of self-sufficiency and he saw the need for prayer. God forgive us that we don't and may we learn from his example. Here in closing, just three things to remind you. First of all, ask yourself the question, would I do what Simon, Andrew, James, and John did? Would I leave everything? God doesn't call us to leave everything, but would, be we, would, be, would we be willing to do so? Years ago, I had someone uh, who had wandered from the faith, and I, in speaking to this person, was encouraging them to come back. And the response was, if I do that, God will make me go live in the desert somewhere. Okay, first of all, if God does that, what's wrong with that? But secondly, do you think so little of God? That, oh, if I give my life to God, he'll make me miserable. The disciples had no clue what was coming. They had no clue. But they followed anyway. The second thing that I would remind you, and we're going to see it time and time again, is the personal aspect of the ministry of Jesus. He dealt with people one-on-one. There are times when there will be large crowds, but in healing, in exorcism, he wants to speak to people. He wants to touch people. He took Simon's mother-in-law by the hand and raised her up, as we'll see the Lord willing next Sunday, with the leper, who says, if you're you're willing, you can cleanse me, you can make me whole. And Jesus touches him and says, I am willing. Again, not a very efficient way to do things. And thirdly, the importance of prayer. If we ever doubted how, imp- or how important prayer was, look at the life of Jesus. And here is the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, and he goes by himself and he prays. I think there's something we could learn from that. Let's pray together. Our Father, in many cases, we are so familiar with the Gospel's account of Jesus, of what he did, that we lose sight of certain things. We forget his authority. We forget his personal touch, dealing with people one-on-one. In a very strange way, we forget how people responded. Simon, Andrew, James, and John, immediately they left and followed him. It's quite remarkable. But above all, I think we forget the place of prayer in the life of Jesus. Considered consider it something optional in our own lives. And here is Jesus spending time alone in prayer. May we take this to heart. May your spirit work in our lives. By your grace, may we become people of prayer as we should be. May we lose any sense of self-sufficiency that we're okay on our own. But more than that, realize that we are In a personal relationship with you That Jesus did come to save the world But he came to save us as individuals as well May we not lose sight of that I pray that you would guide us As we go through the Gospel of Mark Open our eyes and our hearts to receive your truth Thank you for bringing us together today To worship you The beginning of a new week We give thanks for Tim and Kim's uh, Celebrating their fifth anniversary For their sons, Nevin and Jalen For your grace in their lives We thank you for your love Which is seen supremely in your son, the Lord Jesus And it's in his name that we pray Amen